Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure. And today, again, we're crossing the pond all the way to LA to catch up with Sophie Goldschmidt. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Thank you, Marcus. Delighted to be joining you today. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward. Uh, I don't have the chance to speak to uh, the female side in our industry that often. There are not as many of you around as uh, as my male counterparts here. Um, so it is great to uh, finally have another lady on the call who uh, had an amazing career in our industry and, and which we'll be going deeply into and learning all about uh, the fun things you've done uh, uh, from tennis to the NBA to rugby um, some time in the in the agency business and and of course very recently was the world surf league so very different uh, sports uh, and very different roles in in all these sports so uh, I think we'll be having some interesting conversations here and hopefully some interesting learning for with all the interesting things you've done there so let's dive straight in there and get Get a sense, you know, how it all started. You are originally from the UK, studied in in the US at Baylor's University, played tennis there, which is uh, a rival to my university, TCU, which is it's an interesting one. We just realized a minute ago. And then, so, how do you get from playing NCAA tennis and landing with Adidas? Love to hear that part uh, as to warm ourselves up here. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, look, I feel I've been fortunate a number of times during my career. And look, to be honest, when I went to the States on a tennis scholarship to, to play at Baylor and, and get a degree in economics and international business, I'm not sure I knew what I wanted to do next. And right. I certainly wasn't really understanding the opportunity that is, you know, the sports business and the broader kind of sector. While I was at university, I had a chance to understand more about the opportunities that were out there. And I actually did a master's in business and had to do an internship as part of that process and was very fortunate to get an internship at Adidas, which is part right. of the course. And and while I was there, a job opened up. So talk about land on your feet. Yeah. So my first job out of, of college was working for Adidas or Adidas, depending which side of the pond you're on. Yes. <laughs> and in tennis sports marketing. So it was kind of a dream first job, but was a great sort of foray into the sports business. I was working with athletes, with events, learning about, you know, a very impressive, progressive sports organization that produced, you know, world-class products for top-tier athletes, but also for the masses. So it was a great sort of training and sort of immersion into the sports business. And uh, with that, I moved from Texas. So Baylor actually is in Waco, Texas. So moving mm -hmm. from London to Waco was kind of culture shock. Then I moved from <laughs> Waco to Portland, Oregon, which is a beautiful city. And that's where I was based for, for four years, but my role was pretty internationally focused as well. So I got to, to travel and, and see a lot. So yeah, it was it was a fantastic point in, in my career and, and something that uh, I yeah learned a lot from. Yeah, I can relate to that culture shock. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, and that was uh, similar coming from Germany. Um, now, maybe let's before we move on into the WA world, WTA world, you know, what exactly were you doing in Adidas or what athletes maybe were you working with to, just to maybe throw some interesting names around here? Yeah, so I was um, at a Adidas at a time when they had some real strength in their tennis portfolio, both from an event perspective. We had events such as Indian Wells and Roland Garros and a lot of top tennis players. Actually, while I was there, my first month I was there, we signed Martina Hingis. Right. Steffi Graf was in the process of retiring. 
We had Anna Kornikova, if you remember her, who was yes, obviously a bit of a phenom and a big brand symbol for, for Adidas. Right. We had Marit Safin. We had Tim Henman. We had Jan Michael Gamble. We had Jonas Bjorkman. So it was, yeah, quite the lineup. So really understanding how to build those personalities and brands to help sell product and kind of unlock that value mm. was, uh, yeah, a fantastic sort of learning curve for me. So, so you ended up playing tennis, going into tennis. That sort of was the connection there. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my okay. my life sense. was pretty much obsessed with tennis from playing as a junior, going to college for tennis and then working in tennis, which I, I did for a while longer when I went to the WTA. And yeah. then I finally realized I needed to slightly broaden my horizons and try some other sports. But, um, yeah. but yeah, tennis was a, a big part of my childhood and early career. Yeah. And, and I, you know, the obvious question is, I mean, playing NCAA tennis, that's a fairly high level in the US. My university had, was, had that as well. They had some top three players there, really. And, and some of them turned pro. Uh, did you ever have that urge or did they try it to go pro i tried i didn't get very far so after finishing school high school as you would say over here in the uk i took a year out to try and play professionally mm -hmm. and i did a few satellites event events and look i was sort of half decent by british standards once i started playing overseas i realized that didn't really mean very much nice. um, and then i actually had quite a bad injury which was sort of a blessing in disguise to be honest because i may have kept trying for a little bit longer but i certainly wasn't going to get anywhere near to winning wimbledon and so going to college in the states was just a great sort of transition for me it allowed me to still play at a, a decent level but also get a good education and sort of understand what the u.s college sports world is all about which is you know a pretty amazing platform doesn't exist in the same way anywhere else in the world certainly not in the uk and sort of the the resources and opportunities both from a training and academic perspective that you get are amazing and if yeah. you still you know are serious about sort of practicing training competing at a half decent level it ended up being a great move for me and yeah i think you know it was a pretty significant sort of turning point in my career to be honest too i think mm. you know if i'd gone to college in the uk i'm not sure i would have had the same opportunities starting out yeah. um so i feel you know very fortunate that i i started my career over here yeah, the U.S. is a good place to study for sure. Um, now, now I can see the connection, of course, working in the tennis, I guess, area in Adidas, uh, and then moving on to the WTA. A couple, then uh, you know, four years later, you know, was it just uh, being in that environment? Someone in WTA went, "Hey, you know, uh, Sophie, come over here and hang out with us." Uh, I believe uh, Larry Scott was uh, the CEO at that time. Uh, we had Stacy Allister on the on the podcast here before, and. So an amazing lady in the in the world of tennis here. So you know, talk us through a bit uh, how you moved there and and then uh, the roles and the responsibilities you had for the WTA. Yeah, so I um, got to know quite a few folks at the WTA when I was at Adidas. Obviously, our our worlds collided a lot at different events, working with athletes, right. um, etc. And they had an opening and and asked me to join. And it was at a time when Larry Scott took over, so my timing was was great. Mm. He was a very visionary leader and made right. a huge impact on the sport. I was also fortunate 
you know, I joined at a time when women's tennis was really at a peak. I mean, it's had different moments across the decades, but this was sort of pre the real Roger Rafa dominance mm -hmm. when, you know, Hingis, Kleisters, Hennen, Davenport, the Williams sisters were coming through. Right. Sharapova was just breaking through. You know, the women's top 10 was just stacked. Some yeah. of the biggest names in sport it was when we made a push and were able to get equal prize money at the slams. We signed a, a groundbreaking deal with Sony Ericsson, who became our title sponsor and invested significantly. Mm. And that unlocked a lot of opportunities for the tour. And, uh, and Larry was really the visionary for that. We also went through a big restructure of, of how the tournaments worked and how player commitment was going to be handled. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great time to join. And, and I started out in a marketing role, eventually was promoted to oversee all of the marketing and sales globally. Mm. So working with our partners, trying to find new sponsors, working very closely with the players from a marketing perspective, we really try to strengthen those relationships and, right. and really work much more closely with them because you know they were the most powerful assets that, that we had. And so it was exciting to be able to, to do that. So uh, yeah, it was a great, a great run. And I was there for yeah over, over four years during a really transformative period for the sport where we made sort of huge strides on various fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being a tennis fan myself, I, I recall, of course, having uh, you really had an amazing lineup uh, in, in women's tennis at that time. Um, how did that, you know, and as you said, you, you were on the commercial side, of course. How did that translate into dollars and cents? Right? I'm a sales guy. I know I sell sponsorship, I, all this sort of stuff. So it always intrigues me, uh, you know, if you can share some numbers or, or how things grew during your period of time and, and maybe some of the, the companies you guys brought in. Yeah, so it was a very positive sign commercially. You know, we increased revenue significantly. Some of that's public, some of it, you know, I can't really share. I mean, sure. Sony Ericsson was yeah. a very public deal that we did. Right. Um, it was the largest sponsorship ever done in tennis and women's sports at the time, $88 million, hmm. which was huge for us. For but how many, it was for how many years, or that 88? It was for, it's a good question. Roughly. Six, five or six years. <laughs> six, okay. Five or six years, right. yeah. And they came in, so it became the Sony Ericsson WTA Tour, which was Correct. a little bit of a mouthful, but yep. they invested significantly, which was incredibly beneficial. But also we felt the brand fit at that time was so important. To, to be more innovative and progressive. It was when, you know, mobile phones were really taking hold. Yes. Digital media content was sort of becoming king or queen, I guess I should say, as <laughs> talking yep. about the WTA. And so the brand fit was also incredibly meaningful for us. Mm. Off the back of that, we were able to secure various different relationships. We signed a very meaningful relationship with Porsche. We signed a very meaningful relationship with Lotto, with Wilson, Actually, I was sort of remembering back a couple of days ago with Bed Bath & Beyond, which isn't really a, a global brand yet, but is very big in the US. Mm -hmm. And we also did some very meaningful television deals. We did a very broad deal with, with Eurosport. We had good coverage with ESPN here in the States. We also, one of the, the key assets that the WTA owns is the year-end championships. Yeah. And we really significantly repositioned that event and made it a lot more valuable. At that stage, it was in L.A., it had okay. just moved from New York, where it had been for years. 
and we moved it to Madrid in a very lucrative and great partnership with Ian Tiriak and, and Gerard Sabanian, which was a real game changer actually for that event. Mm. From there, it went to the Middle East and Singapore and has really been a revenue driver for the sport. So, um, so yeah, commercially, it was it was a time of, of real progress as well. And look, on the back of that star power that we had, as you know, you know, to a certain extent, the intangibles of what really creates stars is sort of out of your control. So, you know, we were lucky to have the momentum we did with the athletes at that time. But I think, you know, I'm proud of how we utilize them, how we work together. And we were really, you know, very creative with how we sort of repositioned the WTA to be even more appealing to fans around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, you know, when we, when I was talking to, to Stacey about it, it is, is clear. And, 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 I, and we were sort of dissecting that at the time a bit, um, how much it is driven by the star power, right? If you have the big names versus, uh, you know, there's always that next generation, which is coming. So yeah. it's, it's a tough one, right? For any sport, right? Uh, you know, uh, it, whether it takes, you know, we'll talk about later the NBA here, yeah? the Michael Jordan era, et cetera. There's, there's something has to come after, right? And it's, to some degree it does, right? It, it might look different. It might have a different flavor to it, uh, you know, but the, the sport does evolve, I guess. Uh, and like you rightly said, you were there really at a, at a very hot time. That's an exciting space. So, you know, so you were directly on the front side of it of signing these deals and negotiating these deals. Is that your role or which Yeah, side so I was, um, I was overseeing um, the sales and, and marketing side of things. So, yes, that's what I was spending most of my time on. Obviously, revenue unlocks a lot of opportunities, you know, right. for a sport. Um, and working closely, Larry was very commercially focused. He, you know, drove and was involved in a lot of the conversations. Mm. And we had sort of a team supporting um, me. Right. But, yeah, sort of business development and sales more broadly was um, what I spent most of my, my time on. Um, and then on the marketing side, it was really utilizing the partnerships that we had to sort of extend the brand right. um, and also forging much closer relationships with, with the players to really get behind what we were doing because mm. they are just such powerful assets and business partners. And, and we hadn't had such close relationships for a while. So it was a real, real focus to get their buy-in and, and support of what they were doing. And I'm sorry, in what we were doing, and um, and that was very very valuable. I think on on both sides. Yeah, no, interesting. And, and uh, now you know, go, coming from a more probably a marketing role into this sort of more sales role. I mean, it, it, would you consider yourself someone? Uh, you know, would you call yourself a saleswoman, um, or what would what would be the more the preferred term you would use? I prefer the word commercial. I would say I'm sort of a a commercial leader who also has a, a very strong background in marketing. I would say a commercial right. and marketing leader. I mean, that's definitely sort of functionally where I've got my deepest experience. And right. to me, you know, marketing and sales go hand in hand. The right. stronger the brand, the better you can promote your assets, that directly leads to sales success. So for me, it's always been really important to link the two. And I've been fortunate. It's not always the case in a lot of organizations that those two functions are joined. Often they're separate. But for what, for me, one really drives the other. And to have a, a commercial mindset around your marketing strategy and capability is important. You obviously need you know, creativity and out-the-box thinking and to be disruptive. And and I, I love to think that way. I sort of pride myself on, yeah, being um, as disruptive as makes sense <laughs> and ultimately that can unlock value that then you can commercialize in in different ways and you know i think you know creativity is also important for for deal making and building you know 
new revenue streams and creating different types of partnership models. So um, I've always kind of really enjoyed that aspect of, of business throughout my career, both on the commercial, pure commercial and the marketing side. Mm. No, no, I, I would totally agree. Now, where were you based at that time? Where, where is WTA uh, head office at that So time? where it, it was it, – Based in St. Petersburg, um, Florida, which is just outside Tampa, right. which yeah, is where their, right. their offices still are um, right. today, right. or their so, headquarters are today. Yeah. So how do you get from the WTA then into the NBA, which, of course, is a, is a very different product? Mm. How did that happen? So, um, so that was really just through some relationships that I developed while I was working in tennis, both David Stern, who unfortunately very sadly died last year, was the commissioner of the NBA, and his deputy at the time, Adam Silver, who's now the commissioner, are both big tennis fans. And and I was fortunate to meet them during my tennis days because they were passionate about the sport. And it was at a time when the NBA was doing a lot more internationally. And I think my experience was a a good fit for, for that. And I realized while I you know, worked in tennis and it was such a big part of my life, I think I was at a point where I was ready to get some different experiences and try another mm. sport. And the NBA was a, a property and league that I really respected. And it was just good timing because they were looking to do more internationally. And so I decided to, to join them. And yeah, it was a, it was a great move. Two of the smartest guys in the sports business, David and Adam, who I had the chance to work very closely with, along with Heidi Ubroth and Mark Tatum and and various others. So it was a a steep learning curve. The Mm. world of basketball is very different to to the uh, WTA. It was fascinating to be working sort of on a team sport and with such a sort of colossal machine with so much resource and sort of firepower that was also going through a really interesting transition and becoming so global and expanding in so many uh, different ways. So, yeah, career-wise, it was, it was a great move, move for me, and I learned a huge amount. I sort of felt like I got a couple of mini-MBAs in my sort of five-plus years there um, <laughs> and was there in a really you know transformative time as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, anyone I've ever interviewed who's worked at the NBA uh, talks about it in a similar way, the, the learning and, and, of course, the, the, the brilliance of the people on top there. Um, actually, uh, David Stern was supposed to be on the podcast. Uh, we had already agreed. And then, mm. as you rightly said, he uh, unfortunately uh, passed away here. Um, now, oh, you, you're, uh, you, were, you moved first to their uh, into, to New York or where was sort of your role? Yeah, with so and, I was and, with them. Started? Yeah, so I started with them in New York, more focused on marketing partnerships and, and business development, as they call it, but mm-hmm. sort of always with a plan that I would then move into sort of the international area, but right. you know, wanted to get a full understanding of the business and being based in Manhattan uh, made a lot of sense. And then um, we gradually sort of began to more decentralize our international operations and decided to move our uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa office to London. And that's what you know, moved me back to London. Right. Okay. And I took over as sort of managing director of, of that area of the business. Yeah, yeah. So we're in this sort of, just to give people a sense, uh, sort of we're in the late uh, eight, 2008, nine, ten here um, during your time there with the NBA. Um, now, again, Europe always was, of course, a uh, you know fairly imp- important market to the NBA, right? Not, not just from a revenue point of view, but you know you had tons of European players, of course, playing in the league. Uh, 
Middle East and Africa is, is not quite the same, right? There's obviously uh, some African heritage there, but uh, you know, not as uh, you know, any, anywhere is of, of significance. So what, how would you be spending your time? Because it's a fairly broad part, territory, right? It's a large part of the world um, you were dealing with. So uh, what was really what, what was your focus maybe at the beginning? And, and, uh, you know, and maybe we'll go into sort of Middle East and Africa stories later. Yeah, so it was, um, yeah, at a time when they were really expanding into all sorts of markets. So my role was about sort of solidifying markets where we already had a strong presence, mm -hmm. such as the UK, Spain, right. France, Germany, where the brand was already quite established. We had some good TV partners. We had players coming out of those markets, but really with a focus of expanding into new markets, especially where we had you know local talent coming from Turkey, right. Russia, Italy parts of Africa as well. And so my, my focus was on opening sort of outposts in those key markets, finding the right like local talent to help manage it on a day-to-day -day basis okay. and really structuring the right sort of strategic partnership so that we could get further faster and, and not have to do all the heavy lifting ourselves. I think that was a big shift from the MBA standpoint. Previously, everything was very centrally controlled. Okay. But You know, as I think we we know now, finding the right partners um, can be hugely advantageous for all sorts of reasons. And so, while I was there, we opened our first office in Moscow, in Istanbul, right. in uh, in the Middle East, in um, Abu Dhabi. We opened our first office in Africa, in uh, Johannesburg. Um, so it was a time of sort of significant expansion, and a lot of it off based off the, the new talent that we had coming into the league. I mean, we had an amazing number of, of new athletes playing at a very high level and to have that kind of local relevance mm -hmm. was a great way to kind of unlock value and, and expand into these new, new markets. Right. So were you a bit lucky there as well? You had a couple of big names, similar to what it sounded like when you were with the WTA. Uh, throw some of the names out which, which you were dealing with or coming out of those territories which you were uh, responsible for. Yeah, no, you're testing me now. I mean, I well, Luol Deng, <laughs> a great UK player. John Amici was just kind of retiring, but Luol was making a big sort of breakthrough. He had been traded to the Bulls and was doing very well. At that time, we had... Six players out of France, Tony Parker being the most notable, of but course. a yeah. lot of other good ones coming up. Spain, basketball is a big deal over there. Obviously, yes. soccer, football dominates, but yep. basketball was growing. We had the Gasol brothers. We had Calderon. I believe we had six players out of Spain at that time. We had some Greek players. I wish we had the Greek freak, Giannis. Mm -hmm. yeah. We didn't have anyone quite that good, but we had some great, great names. We had Dirk Nowitzki, who was, you know, an established yeah. star in the league from Germany. Russia, we had several good players. Turkey as well, interestingly, a very strong basketball yeah. market with a strong domestic yeah. league. Players coming out of there as well. So, yeah, it was... Um, Yeah, at time, I seem to remember back then, I believe we had over 70 players from Europe playing in the oh, NBA, wow. okay. which is pretty, pretty amazing to think, yeah. you know, already it was so, so global back then. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, was your role more to set up these offices and set up operations in a sense? And, or was it again, driving commercial new opportunities? What were you sort of your focus? There was definitely an operational aspect of sort of setting up the right infrastructure, getting the right people on board. 
but always with the MBA, there's very much a commercial sort of imperative and and brand building sort of associated strategy with that. Mm. So it was about um, broadening our media and PR presence, making sure that the content was more available, that fans could access it, you know, both through linear, digital. At that point, we were also rolling out NBA League Pass, which mm-hmm. was very ahead of its time at right. that point, you know, an right. OTT yes. paid for platform back in the early 2000s was kind of unheard of yes we had nba tv as well which we were able to syndicate to different partners so that was a big area of focus i spent a lot of my time on the media side of things mm. um and then it was about what we called finding the right marketing partners others may call those sort of sponsors mm. so getting local brands that would help our credibility and authenticity we also you know we had a lot of the big global brand partners at that time Coke was an NBA partner, EA, Adidas, various others. But we were really focused on finding the right local brands to drive incremental value, but also just to make the link sort of more organic between basketball, the NBA, and sort of the local market. Because the NBA stood for different things in different markets. In certain markets, it was all about the elite basketball. In others, it was more a lifestyle fashion brand. So there definitely wasn't a sort of one-size-fits-all approach. Mm. You know, it was a slightly different strategy and and how we brought the brand to life in each market looks slightly different. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and as we said earlier, uh, if you have a star already playing in the league, it makes things easier, right? Because you can relate to that versus having it being the NBA still being the, just this big American, you know, basketball league there, which is very different uh, in a country which doesn't have a local star in it, right? the branding and the positioning is very different there too now let, let's let's maybe just just pick one or two examples here of um something you did in in the more exotic parts of the world like the middle east and africa um you know because nowadays you know again the latest and i think this was pre-covid the nba was trying to set up a leak there even right i don't know whether that was already on the radar during your time or what was the sort of things you were doing um in the u.s uh, sorry in the u.s in in, in africa yeah it was to be honest, it was a goal at that time, but we hadn't got round to the plans for it. It was a, a much more grassroots stage. So in Africa, there was a big community grassroots aspect to what we were doing. Okay. We'd had a program called Basketball Without Borders right. in the region for many years, where we would take a lot of our top players, current and former, and go and do different camps and clinics throughout mainly South Africa, but some other markets as well, mm. to really bring the land the the game and the brand to life in a very sort of organic and inclusive way and look there was an amazing pipeline of talent coming out of the region and we saw the potential there and felt it was also a fairly untapped market not as cluttered and crowded as some other sort of markets and and regions so we had a very grassroots approach initially combined with broadening our media presence so we signed various deals with Supersport, with sabc etc to really broaden the presence of having live games and content and other highlight shows um, throughout the region and then ultimately that was building up to having games over there and then ultimately a league and just so exciting to see that you know that's come to fruition obviously a little bit on hold at the moment but i know they've hired a a great chapter to lead that that business who's got you know great experience and i'm sure it will be very successful 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I really like uh, the way the NBA does this. I mean, they obviously, again, I think David Stern was the, the guy driving it um, into China, right? And it's similar. It wasn't right away, you know, let's go with big events and, and bring a team there. But it was really the grassroots site which started China, which is now, of course, you know, the biggest markets for the NBA globally. You have, uh, you know, similar what they're now doing in India. Uh, I don't know if you still follow the NBA a bit, uh, but similar. They, they do a lot of grassroots activities yep. in the country now turning a cricket country, you know, at least trying to maybe become the second sort of or, you know, one of the top important sports. There. So I think that approach I really like, uh, you know, what the NBA, and it sounds like that's, this is sort of what you saw as well, right? It's this really going, building it from the ground up approach, uh, which is not what everyone normally does, right? A lot of other leagues, uh, I would say, always come from more from a top down approach. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's well put. I think they take a much more long-term view and a holistic way to sort of investing in the sport and see that that will pay off in multiple ways down the road rather than just sort of parachuting in for some PR appearances or the odd sort of high-profile game. They definitely mm. complement all the activities and the grassroots approach with that because I think you need that that sizzle and, and those high-profile hits um, to kind of get attention in certain ways as well. But they're playing the long game. They want to build it organically. And, you know, I remember David Stern often saying, you know, we'll go one kid at a time. You know, for every kid that we convert from kicking a ball to bouncing a ball, you know, that can be really meaningful for us. And mm. um, if we can be the number two clearly most, you know, global sport, that's um, a huge opportunity for, for basketball and the NBA. And we like kind of that runway and opportunity we have to close the gap. So, yeah, I think the fact that they look at it holistically, they obviously have resource and connections to do that, and they're willing to take a longer-term view. It's not invest now and we get a return tomorrow. They definitely have a very clear return they want from all of their investments, but they're willing to play a slightly longer game to see those, which I think um, really does sort of set them apart from a lot of different leagues. Yeah, the success has proven uh, it right, uh, and, and I do like this. I like this one kid at a time. Uh, it's a good, good phrase. Now let's move on a bit here because uh, you know, again, looking at your CV, uh, you kind of every sort of four or five years, you sort of do like switching uh, roles, and in this case, again, switching sports. So you're going from you know playing hoops to playing rugby, which uh, again is again a very male dominated sport. I would argue at least. At, at least sort of a, the way I would look at it, uh, maybe uh, incorrectly. Ger as, as a German, uh, when it comes to rugby, we're not really that close. But you, st you work for the for England Rugby um, as the chief commercial and marketing officer. Again, uh, you know, wearing your commercial head there. How did that come about? And and, and let's talk a bit about it. Again, fascinating sport, and, and of course, a big team in the in the world of rugby. Yeah, so it was um, yeah a really interesting journey. I um, I was very passionate about the sport and never played it. It wasn't really an option for the girls to play it when I was going yeah. growing up. For the most part, that's obviously changed in recent years, and, right. and the girls' um, side of the sport is is thriving and really doing very well, both the fifteens game and then especially in, in sevens. But it was a, a sport I was passionate about. My father is rugby obsessed, so I'd grown up watching and going to the odd Six Nations game and, okay. and was familiar with the sport, so could see the potential. And uh, England had recently won the rights to host the 2015 World Cup, which is a real sort of moment to take the sport to sort of yeah. the next level. And off the back of the 2012 Olympics, where sort of having a massive home event 
in your market, just seeing what that could do for sport was really exciting to me. Mm. To be honest, I could have stayed at the NBA a lot longer. I loved it there. Um, I definitely could have got a lot more learning out of it. But this opportunity to work for the RFU was just quite a unique one. And the timing with the World Cup just was too good to turn down. And, yes. and it was at a time where there was mass disruption. I mean, when I arrived at the RFU, there had been some real issues around the board and the governance side of it. And and you're right, look, stereotypically, it had been a very male-dominated organization sport. So I was the, the first female board member and sort of senior executive, I believe, that they'd had at, at that time um, and overseeing, you know, significant part of the organization and um and they really empowered me and us to to get on with it and sort of change our ways and change the brand positioning and be much more innovative and progressive with how we were working with partners and we invested significantly in the stadium and changed the fan experience and and wanted to make the sport much more inclusive and really activate the whole country leading up to, to 2015. So it was an amazing time to be there. And I'm really proud of what we did as a team. I think we significantly increased commercial value. We also drove big increases in audience, viewership and attendance and, and struck some sort of pretty groundbreaking deals. Um, during my tenure and um, and the sport sort of went from strength to strength. Unfortunately, while the World Cup ended up sort of holistically being the most successful one they'd had, unfortunately our performance on the pitch didn't quite live up to expectations. But it yeah, was yeah, an amazing New, Ze- New amazing Zealand journey. won it, right? And and but and New Zealand won it and yeah, uh, and England went out in the earlier earlier stages. Yeah, we um, which was tough because we, yeah, we that's never good as we a had host. a better team than we sort of performed during the tournament. But hey, that's sport. Um, that is yeah, sports. no, learn right. learned a lot. Yeah. And so now being of course with uh, uh, with Rugby England, um, how much were you involved in the World Cup directly? Is is that a standard role automatically, just being the host, or you, your role was very focused on the team itself? How how did that sort of work? So my role was mainly focused on the the sport in, in England. So right. sort of overseeing the the stadium events games ticketing everything that went with that selling sponsorships for the sport in in england and everything with that went with that we had various subsidiary companies that i chaired um, we owned a marriott hotel at twickenham stadium we had a virgin gym chain we had a joint venture hospitality company with with compass so it was quite a broad oh, okay. um, commercial remit and then we set up a separate subsidiary to actually oversee the world cup it needed some independence from the day-to-day the RFU from just a governance and, and cost standpoint. And it's really sort of a joint venture that's established with World Rugby and the RFU or with each host committee to run the day-to-day operations planning and to get ready with, with the event. So we work very closely with that team. I was on the World Rugby Commercial Committee mm. and was very involved with certain aspects of it. But we had a team, you know, directly running that day-to-day which uh, which worked really well because obviously you know the RFU in its own right is a a big organization that is running different events competitions leagues matches on a a weekly weekly basis so we sort of had to sort of parallel path some of the areas of the business right again this is sort of where my ignorance with rugby comes a little bit into now you know if i compare it to the football world if you're with the federation your focus is really much on the national team rather than the leagues right the leagues are sort of separately separated out how does that look in rugby is that similar or it all sort of is more still controlled by one body similar so but the rfu had a little bit more control than 
maybe comparing it sort of football to a certain extent. So the Premiership Rugby League, which is the top tier of men's professional right. rugby in the UK, is run as a separate entity, but heavily funded and supported by the RFU. Right. And so there's a very close kind of connection and working relationship. All of the other leagues and aspects of the sport are managed by the RFU. So the second tier of rugby, all the other leagues that kind of feed into that, the women's league, and then all of the teams, both the 15 side of the game and also sevens, which was really kind of booming at, at that right. time. So right. the RFU had a, a broad remit compared to sort of most football federations, mm. but the premiership, the top tier of, of men's pro rugby in England had its own setup that we just worked very closely with and provide a lot of the funding and, and sort of supported however we could because it was you know very connected to the England team and the performance of that league and how the players were sort of being managed and when the national team had access etc you know was uh, was kind of a, a joint initiative um, and so uh, they were sort of managed closely together got it got it that makes sense now Again, let, let's let's talk a bit about it. You know, you have a World Cup in the host country that helps, uh, even if the team maybe didn't perform at the level. But uh, you know, it just you know creates such a spotlight for the for the competition or for the sport, of course. You know, how were we able to turn this uh, you know into some commercial success on the back of it? Maybe just just give us a couple of examples there. I think it was sort of leading up to it as much as off the back of it. I think just the the fervor and interest in the sport that allowed us to either renew in a significantly sort of enhanced way, both financially or expanding the rights leading up to the tournament and often having a lot of those deals go beyond it was a great opportunity. We felt, to be honest, a lot of the upside was going to be in the lead up. We were going to have all of this attention, both commercially and from existing and new fans. And we wanted to be able to capture that so we could keep it after. If we didn't optimize it leading into it to suddenly sort of turn everything off, to, uh, turning everything on afterwards to try and capture it, we didn't feel was the right way to sort of go about it. And we'd learned a lot from 2012. So for us, the legacy started kind of two years before. Right. And that was both commercially and from a participation standpoint. I mean, the RFU is a a not-for-profit organization, while it is now very commercially minded, we are about ultimately increasing participation in the sport in the UK. We have, sorry, have been gone there a while. They are about increasing participation in England. And so being able to increase commercial revenue ultimately allows you to invest in getting more people active um, in the game. So that was sort of a big focus. And our partners really bought into that. I mean, our biggest partners at that time were O2, the telco company, right. Canterbury with the kit. We had BMW, we had IBM, we had Green King. We had an amazing sort of lineup of partners that really stepped up in a big way. And that then continued post, post the World Cup because they wanted to keep that momentum and interest going as well. Mm. Cool. Well, two last questions here on the rugby world. I'm just fascinated by it. Um, and the rugby Six Nations obviously is the big one played, you know, annually. Uh, you know, how much... Again, uh, does it mean when the success or failure in it, uh, you know, dictates, uh, you know, sponsorship or, or other commercial discussions, um, you know, and, and how well were you doing during your period there? Um, as I said, you know, did you guys win any of the signations during that time or uh, how was the team? Yeah, we, we were good when I was there. Stuart Lancaster did an amazing job. So while the World Cup was a really tough run for the team and for him and well, all of us um, leading up to it we had great success with a really young exciting team he brought a lot of new talent into the team and we won 
um, several Six Nations. I can't remember exactly how many, but we did very well. I remember okay. we had an amazing win against the All Blacks, who we hadn't beaten in a long time. And we were really, you know, not number one in the world, but we were quite dominant. We were, for the most part, in the top three. And that was good for business. Winning, right. no doubt, is good good for business. Winning helps. Having yep. said, <laughs> winning for sure helps. And it helps commercially in that, you know, brands want to be associated with yep. winning Absolutely. properties and teams. And it helps to also just sell more merchandise, more beer on match day, um, yep. et cetera. It, it does translate and you have bonus, you know, upside with different contracts, et cetera. Having said that, the RFU is such a strong brand with great values that even when performance isn't maybe where we would wish, mm. it might be the brand really could weather that. I mean, it's very hard to get a ticket for an England game, especially a Six Nations, a big game, or one of right. the big Waterman International games. And so, look, they're they're in a really fortunate position. So it's it's less sort of turbulent than than other teams and um, properties might be. But look, you you have to work hard. At that you can't get complacent and performance, you know, definitely, right. but drives incremental value for sure. Right. And I love the logo. I think the rose is, is again, I think it's a powerful logo there. Uh, now, while, you know, jumping a bit ahead, and, and I'm assuming you still follow it, obviously CVC has, you know, recently bought into uh, rugby, you know, in a, in a big way uh, in the UK. I don't know where any of that was already sort of starting while you were there, or if not, even, uh, you know, what, what would be your comment on it? Uh, what is CVC seeing what they can be able to do um, and or where, you know, they think they can take rugby? Look, I think it's a really smart investment from from them. Um, and I think it's also, by the way, great for rugby. I think to get some outside independent commercial expertise and strategic thinking can be really beneficial. I think, you know, and this isn't just, you know, the RFU and rugby. I think sport in general can be quite insular. And I think finding the right external partners, investors can be really additive. They can challenge in a different way. They can potentially bring additional resource to the table and just sort of force slightly different thinking, which can often be very beneficial as long as their interests are in the right place and there's real alignment over sort of the ultimate old goals. And I think, look, CVC have proven several times that they know how to optimize sports commercially and, and otherwise. And I think their approach where they've taken minority stakes, so they're not trying to take over the whole game and control the governance. They've been very focused on the sort of commercial and marketing aspects of rugby. Um, and that's their focus with these different investments and being able to sort of aggregate those, I think is is going to be beneficial for the, for the sport. Because I think, you know, there's been a lot of sort of competition amongst the different stakeholders, which actually can sometimes hurt you in the broader market. Right. Whereas if you can potentially pull and aggregate some rights, and I think, you know, you can have more, more leverage with, with certain rights buyers. So I'm, yeah, I'm really interested to see how it works out. But I, I think overall, it's, it's a positive move for the sport. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll all be watching from the sideline, and and it's you know they're not going to call it uh, rugby sevens uh, as, as in uh, because they have the sort of sevens vote now, right? That's uh, my understanding at least uh, for this particular for that for that part of the the competition um, that they yep. become the, the the sevens member now. 
So that yeah, it's an interesting move what they what they're doing. Of course, uh, they're doing it in volleyball as well, uh, which we maybe touch on later a bit because you're also involved with uh, with a new volleyball league there as well. So there's, there's some crossover there, and and I guess you know again different sports, but uh, similar you know dynamics are happening uh, with private equity getting in there, and and again I think even you mentioned earlier that you know you work do some work with other private equity firms. So we'll get there when once we just finish up quickly here the last set of parts to your. Uh, career, let's say the last four or five years, um, A, you spent a little bit of time with CSM, um, you know, friends from the agency world here, which it must be a bit of a different, uh, you know, uh, again, maybe a culture shock, if that's the right word, coming from, you know, the federation side and, and the, the sporting side, to, you know, all of a sudden being on the other side. How was that? Uh, you know, you spent sort of a year, year, year or two there. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. You're right. I mean, it's, it's definitely a very different area of the business. I'd worked with all sorts of agencies across the years. So I felt I, I sort of had a good understanding of that side of the business. And it was a great opportunity at CSM. I was helping to sort of oversee several different agencies and see where there were integration and synergistic opportunities and, and where there was room to sort of expand into new service offerings and uh, a new market. So I learned a huge amount, some really talented people in the business and covering all sorts of areas, both on the brand side, the rights holder side, and then providing different hospitality, data, research, consulting businesses as well. So it was a huge breadth, which was great to get sort of a deeper understanding um, of. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed my my time there. And then I had, you know, the opportunity to move back to the States and uh and go and work uh, for the World Surf League, which isn't what I thought I would be doing uh, next after sort of rugby and then working on the agency side of uh, the sport. But it was, as it turned out, too good an opportunity to turn down. And surfing was an incredibly exciting time, having been accepted into the Olympics, sort of the lifestyle crossover, transcending unlike sort of any other sports that I'd been around. Mm-hmm. Also, we had this amazing new wave technology business. So part of my remit was also overseeing the Kelly Slater Wave Company. So it had sort of different aspects. And to me, sort of a fundamental difference was that the sport was basically owned by one main shareholder. You know, you didn't have sort of committees and and, and unions and, and team owners, et cetera. Right. You know, really strategically, the decision-making process and kind of the responsibility I had and how I was empowered was was very different and a very visionary owner who really wanted to take the sport to a whole new level and had aggregated the rights that had been sort of very disparately sort of managed across the sport. It had never really had a cohesive strategy or business plan. And I saw that as, you know, an amazing opportunity to sort of try and unlock the value of uh, of a pretty amazing sport. This, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, it is I definitely an really amazing love. Yeah, and it is an amazing sport. As no doubt when you watch these images, then, you know, when they – uh, get into the barrel and, and the whole thing. Now, and I, I do recall, this is many years ago, that someone had approached us, maybe uh, it was even during your time there, about the you know selling the commercial rights, not so much commercial, the, the media rights or, or getting involved in some of the media side of things. And, and the big challenge I thought, I thought at that time was always, of course, the unpredictability of the weather and how you yeah. can even determine when the when the, I was going to say the match when the event is happening. You know, that's that's just the nature of the beast here, I guess. Um, how you know how do you guys work around this? That you know, of course, you need waves; otherwise, there is no sport, right? You know, how do, how do you do this? How do you plan around it? Because it is you know probably the most unpredictable environment maybe I can think of in the world of sport, right? 
Outside yeah, maybe that's skiing, for sure. which you need snow. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, we sort of we call the waves moving mountains, so it's sort of like um, right. yes, you you need to get the snow, but at least you're sort of in one one position with us, you know, with the swell and the different forecasts, etc. Right. And there's all sorts of variables. But look, you're right. One of the the challenges, although we looked at it as an opportunity as well, is from a live programming perspective you don't know exactly when you're on in the ocean. Mm. But that was why the wave technology was such a game changer, because now we had man-made waves that were world-class in sort of performance level, where we could push a button on a Saturday night at 8 p.m. and roll out live surfing. So it really is a game-changing moment for the sport, and we hosted our first ever top-tier competitions in wave systems while I was there, which was amazing. So how does it work? I have to admit, I'm not familiar enough with it even. You can create waves in the ocean, you mean? No, no. It's a man-made wave basin, as we call Ah, it. So it's not in the ocean. So you can also now take surfing, in theory, to any part of the world. And it's a a big basin of water. I mean, the first facility we built in the middle of California was the size of five football fields. So it's it's a big infrastructure Ah, project. And basically, a technology pushes the water and creates a wave. And you can change the shape of the wave based on the the bottom of the basin. So I became a bit of a, a water um, science expert learned whole new vocabulary working uh, working <laughs> on that business but it, it is a game changer and it solves the programming issue having right, said that right. we still felt you know it was very important that a lot of our waves and still the majority vast majority of them take place in the ocean in the natural and so we t- tweaked the format we tweaked some of the scheduling so that it was a little bit more predictable but it's look one of the beauties and challenges of the sport you know you are dependent on the conditions and you know any day, you don't really know exactly what the waves are going to be like until you you wake up. So for traditional linear broadcasts, that's a big challenge. They're not going to ha- ha- hold hours of slots for us, hoping that we're going to get some live surfing. Right. Having said that, from a digital perspective, it works really well. It's why right. surfing and the WSL was actually one of the most pioneering sports to first stream live back in the right. early 2000s, where people were only just sort of figuring out that that was an opportunity. And it's meant that we had a very digitally savvy sort of audience that were used to watching us that way. Mm. So it actually ended up being quite an advantage for the sport as sort of a lot of live content has moved that way. But it also sort of a big shift that I made was that we also, it didn't make sense to be so focused just on live content. One of the beauties of the sport too is there are so many other aspects that fans relate to um, and are so beautiful and amazing to watch, whether it's the ocean conservation aspect where we really took some some big kind of leadership um, decisions and stances to, to address those issues, the travel and leisure, going to these amazing locations, unlocking these different stories and, and personalities. So we really broadened our content offering, live still being super important, but we had so much more to offer, which other sports, you know, didn't have the same breadth and sort of depth that, that we had. Nice. So when I mentioned sort of it's a sport that definitely transcends into lifestyle very powerfully, possibly better than any other sport, we really leaned into that in a big way. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, and again, yeah, it is fascinating. Uh, now, you were the CEO, but I'm assuming, you know, having such a strong commercial background, uh, this again was part of your remit, right? Driving in new revenue opportunities or bringing in new partners. Uh, uh, what, what we were able to do during those, uh, you know, three, four years there, again, in a sport which 
uh, there are certain obvious partnerships, you know, the, the lifestyle brands which are which are in the sport already. But uh, what are the other brands who get attracted by this, you know, and what is the selling point? I'd love to hear, you know, what is the sort of pitch, how you would, uh, the elevator pitch of, you know, why world surfing? There were a lot of different sort of unique attributes that we really kind of focused on. First of all, the size of the audience is a lot bigger than people imagine. If I told you there were more surfers than golfers in the world, you'd probably think I was crazy, but it's it's yeah, true. Well, There's okay. over 400 um, million surfers, or people that have an interest in surfing. Wow. So the size of the audience is significant. Okay. It also skews much younger, and a lot of brands yeah, that, are looking to golf, get a younger sure. audience. <laughs> younger than golf and younger than pretty much any, any sport right, right, okay. by quite a significant way. So the fact that you were reaching a younger demographic was very important some brands right, right. also the fact that there was a big lifestyle component it sort of it has the ultimate coolness factor yep, yep. beautiful places beautiful people doing amazing things it was also really strong and and the fact that we controlled everything sort of outright so we could be much more flexible and innovative with partners. We could try things. You know, mm. Facebook did a very significant deal with us, the largest global sports deal that they'd done at the time. And it was because we were great guinea pigs. We were willing to try things and push the boundaries. They also saw that we had a young fan base. They loved the fact that it was sort of the epicenter of where sport made lifestyle. But also the clincher was we had the most engaged audience in sports. So while it may not be as big as some others, the engagement and loyalty from our fan base right. in surfing was off the charts. And so brands really bought into that. And yeah, as you'd expect, we had a lot of the surf brands being very supportive and they, you know, been partners. And actually they were the original owners of the, the pro tour for, for many years. Right. But we had other brands such as Perona, we had Jeep, we had Airbnb okay. and various others that, that joined. In fact, Airbnb, it was the first partnership they did in sports with their experiences business, um, which we, I was very proud of. We did a really innovative partnership with Ikea. Again, one of the first times they'd done anything okay. in sport, and that was around the environment and, and ocean conservation. So we were able to attract some, some great partners, mm. and they really helped kind of broaden what we were trying to do. Uh, because again, you know, you're coming from the NBA you, or, or even WTA days, as you said, you had the big names there. You know, England rugby again sells itself probably to some degree in England. You know, world surfing is a little different, right? It's a little probably a harder pitch. Would, would you would you agree with that? Or yeah, there was a big education. I think the educational side is what we had to spend a lot of time on. I think once people understood the the sport, the audience, what we were all about, and just how diverse our offering was, we had. The main championship tour, we had a qualifying series, we had a big wave tour, we had a longboard tour. We also had a lot of rich content. We owned a technology company. So sort of the breadth of what we had to offer was, you know, pretty unparalleled in many mm. ways. But you're right, in certain markets, people may not have been as familiar with the sport and the brand and others. They were very familiar. I mean, Brazil was a huge market for us. At one point, seven of our top 10 surfers were from Brazil. And so sort of the fan ability and brand interest there was kind of off the charts in Australia. In the US, it's a major sport in many markets as well. So, you know, it varied a lot sort of market by market, um, which, look, is the same with a lot of sports properties. But it's it's definitely a sport that's kind of on the rise and I think sort of captures the imagination unlike others I'd worked for. I mean, it's it sort of uh, – it brings a whole new sort of dynamic and opportunity to, to fans and, and to different partners. 
Uh, I mean, sure, the lifestyle element of it is 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 definitely the the, the difference to any of the other sports, I guess. Uh, and I'm sure that's probably what attracted you. And, and I guess you're still there as a as an advisory board member now, even though you you stepped down from the chief executive role, which brings us sort of wait what you're doing now, right? From my understanding, is you you're working with a host of companies in an advisory role, some startups, some some other more established groups. Um, as that we touched on the, the the volleyball earlier, I think it's called Love B. Or I don't know how you pronounce it properly, uh, the League One Volleyball, right? Let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, what exactly are you doing there? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, yeah, working for um, various different companies across sports, media, tech, content, and health and fitness. Mm. And Love is one. It's L-O-V-B, silent L-O-V-B. sort of E right, replaced right. with a V, right. which stands for League One Volleyball. Um, there's not much out there yet about it publicly, but it's a fascinating business. Okay. Obviously, quite a lot happening in the volleyball space at the moment. Another yeah. sport that CBC recently invested in, the FIVB, which is really exciting. But, right. you know, volleyball is a massive sport globally, maybe less known in some markets, but in others, it's significant. Hundreds of millions of people around the world are fans and participants. And so I'm associated with a really interesting business that has a grassroots media and pro element to it. And yeah, there'll be a lot more sort of being announced over the next uh, next couple of months. Mm. And I'm this also, is traditional oh, volleyball as in indoors or is it uh, beach or yeah. which, which part no, of it? No, it's um, focused on indoor. There will be a beach element. Right. Indoors, a much bigger area of the sport right. by a long way. Really? But beach obviously is what a lot of people are familiar with around yeah. the Olympics and exactly. for these reasons. But beach is kind of where the majority of events training takes place so it has more of an indoor focus but there will be sort of a beach aspect pre-season post-season and and with some of the grassroots clubs interesting interesting yeah and and, and you also you know let, let's uh, let's jump a bit from uh from the sports side into the tech world because again i think you alluded you kind of playing around the tech space and there is a, a new group called uh, a new company coming up there called tursa which i guess plays in the in the fitness tech side of it and, and i know you can't say as much about it yet but uh, you know just share a little bit uh sounds like an amazing product coming out there yeah, it is. It's um, it's pretty groundbreaking, and we'll be sort of officially launching that one also in the next month or so. It's one I'm a business partner with the founder on, and it's in the connected home fitness device, mm. but with a lot more capability from a sort of tech and product feature standpoint that exists today. It really is sort of taking that space to a whole new level. So I'm I'm really excited about it. Obviously, it's a very hot sector, and and yes. COVID has just accelerated a sort of the growth. And interest in the space so um so yeah i've been been learning a lot and definitely crosses over i think well with my sports background but i like to try and stay fit when i can so that's an area i'm passionate about too so yeah i've been working with some interesting technology companies as well but tercer i'm spending a lot of time on that's a big commitment and then yeah various others in the space Egoli, which is a a great new ai platform focused on sort of logging and tagging and and annotating data and content at a level that sort of doesn't exist currently. Mm-hmm. There's been quite a lot of news about them recently. They signed a, a great new partnership with the International Paralympic Committee and are making great strides. And obviously managing content and data is a hot area at the moment as well. And mm. and they're doing it to a level of specificity that just doesn't currently exist, which I think is going to be hugely valuable for, it, so for rights go- holders and buyers. 
So is Egoli a, sort of an app as in sort of front-facing, consumer-facing side, or it's more the back-end running analytics, or what, which side of it is it on? It's more, at the moment, it's more focused on the back-end, but it ultimately yeah. will be something that the consumer can directly interact with as well. But you need sort of a quantity of content already that's annotated, logged and tagged sort of in the right form to make it most user-friendly for the consumer. But ultimately, that's what rights holders will be able to use it for. So there's kind of different phases of the business, mm. both more of a sort of B2B side, but ultimately, it will be also a direct consumer offering as well. Right, right, right. Now, you obviously currently in LA. Is, is sort of is this where you're coming from? You're hanging out with some folks in Silicon Valley and, and uh, connecting there <laughs> with some of the tech side of it? Or, or how do they, these sort of uh, deals come about? Yeah, well, I haven't been hanging out with many people at all for the last uh, 12 months, but uh, we do have our own, we call it Silicon Beach down here in uh, in LA. Okay. Sort of the Venice Santa Monica area has become quite a tech hub with uh, Google and Snap and others having big offices um, down here. But look, I, I sort of, I connected with a lot of people in media and tech during my sports sure. roles. It's a big part of kind of what sports is these days and what I spent my time doing. So it's been quite a natural um, transition, but still staying very close to, to sport as well. I mean, every company I'm involved in definitely has sort of a sports angle mm. to it. And I follow the sports industry as closely as, as ever. And obviously it's been through some challenging times, but I think also some quite exciting times. You know, we're seeing disruption like we've never seen before. And I think, you know, that's going to be really positive for a lot of sports that maybe are now doing things that they wouldn't have considered before, which will ultimately um, pay off once hopefully we can sort of weather this this really tricky storm that we've been in for, for 12 months now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I see the same. And, you know, the podcast called the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. And so interesting, you know, having had that sort of, let's say, executive career till now, you are, you know, now in, in the entrepreneurial space. Is that what you wanted to do? Is, is that sort of um, or is it more of a transition period until maybe the, the next big, you know, role shows up somewhere in, in the world of uh, federation world? Look, I after stepping down from the World Surf League, I'd never taken any kind of break in my career. And I, I wanted to take just a moment to sort of step back and be really thoughtful about what I wanted to do next. The, mm. the World Surf League was a full-on immersion. And for good reasons, I slightly lost track of what was going on in the rest of the world. And, and I was curious to sort of more deeply explore the media, tech, content, and health and fitness worlds. And mm. so doing this various the various advisory and, and board work and um, partnering with Tursa has been fantastic. I've learned a lot, made some amazing connections. And and now, yeah, sort of looking ahead to what's next, I'm, I'm very open-minded. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. And uh, we'll see what's next. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling very positive about the future, both sort of for me, hopefully, but also more broadly for the sports world. I think it, it's going to be a, a great few years while once we can hopefully get, you know, folks vaccinated and, and get back to some sort of normality. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and what I see on myself is that, you know, being a little less directly involved in the day-to-day certain things, just because some of those areas have slowed down so dramatically around the world, that gives you that headspace uh, actually to get involved in other things, which otherwise I probably would have never done. So I'm similar. I, I work with you know private equity groups or you know doing some other you know work in funds, fundraising or or spec world and, and all those sort of crazy things which are currently out there, which uh, you know is all this sort of new money coming into sport in different in very different forms, right? Um, uh, you know, the NFT world, you know, when you look at what crypto is now bringing to sport, uh, again, looking what the NBA is doing there, 
super fascinating stuff and you know otherwise if you're busy selling sponsorship and tv rights and, and all the other things which we as a company always do you wouldn't really you know have the time or headspace for it so i think it's yeah similar here it's been an interesting you know 12 almost 18 months now where uh, you know the, the our world has been turned upside down but uh, it creates huge new opportunities. I, as I said, I have some friends who are working in the, uh, in, in the sort of fitness space as well, which I'll connect you with. You know, you never know. There may be some interesting overlap. So, Sophie, enjoyed our, our hour here. Great to go through your career and, and learning the different uh, stops you had around the world um, and the different, of course, uh, sports you work with. Very colorful, uh, you know, really from, from women's tennis all the way to surfing. I mean, it, it can't, can't get much more diverse than that. I mean, you know, with a bit of rugby and, and basketball thrown in the middle of it. So thank you for your time there. Enjoy your rest of the evening in L.A. And uh, hopefully we'll talk some more soon. Great. Thanks, uh, Marcus. It was a, a pleasure chatting to you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. So uh, we'll talk soon and uh, good evening there in, uh, in L.A. Thank you. Have thank a good you. day. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.